And we'll begin reading at verse 16. For this reason, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace. Literally, he says, therefore of faith that by grace. Therefore, for this reason, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you, in the sight of him whom he believed. Now let's skip the parenthetical. He is the father of us all in the sight of God, in the sight of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead, and calls into being that which does not exist. Again, literally, calls the things which do not exist as existing. In hope, against hope, he believed. In order that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your seed be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Let's pray once again. Father, we're so grateful for the miracles that you've done in our lives and for your faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. And Father, we confess that we need a God. We need you. We need the God. And I think of what Ravi Zacharias said this morning in part of that message that I heard that man was man has no meaning apart from worship. There's just no reason to just stand around and look at things and pursue uh, short-term goals that don't last. There's only one reason to be in this world, and that's to be related to You and to glorify You. Lord, forgive us when we've missed the mark in that area. And uh, we thank You for this opportunity to gather together this morning and to give ourselves to worshiping You, to sitting at Your feet and learning from You, to look into Your Word, to fellowship together. And we pray for Your help as we look into Your Word this morning. Pray for the help of Your Holy Spirit. We pray for a spirit of faith and power and love and of a sound mind. Help us, Lord. Deliver Your people. Glorify Your name. Fulfill the promises that You made to Abraham and to Abraham's great seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. We look to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it's been two weeks once again since our last study in Romans 4. We spent the last two times considering 
this whole concept of what Paul calls the promise. What does he mean by the promise? Well, Paul grounds his whole argument uh, on this, that when God made his covenant with Abraham, that covenant was not a covenant of works. It wasn't a covenant that was based in any way on human performance. Rather, it was a gracious, sovereign promise that God made, a sheer promise that God made to Abraham. God took Abraham out on that dark, cool, desert night. And you can picture uh, what it would be like out in the desert before electricity. And uh, he said, look up at those stars. And in that black night of the desert, he looked up and he said, see if you can count those. So shall your seed be. That was just promise. Didn't have anything to do with Abraham or with man. It had to do with God's sheer gracious promise. Later on, he said this I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. Another place, he said this I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. That's what promise is all about. And those promises are as certain as God's Word. In fact, we use the term Word that way. You say, you gave me your Word. You promised. And the promises are as certain as God's Word, as certain as His veracity, as certain as His faithfulness. They don't have anything to do with man and his performance. They have to do with God and His faithfulness and His power. Genesis 22, 16-18, By Myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gates of their enemies. I'm thankful about that. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So promise. Promise has to do with grace, and therefore it has to do with faith. Faith has to do with depending upon another. And so faith fits right in with promise really well, because faith, you're depending upon another and what he's promised, you see. So therefore, it's of faith that it might be by grace to the end that the promise might be certain to all the seed. So... These things all go together, faith and grace and promise. Uh, This promise has to do with grace. It does not have to do with merit and therefore with law. You see, they're just two totally different things. Now, isn't it amazing how Paul goes back to that very passage that the Jews had messed up totally? I mean, they said Abraham was the father of law keepers. And you say, well, how did how could that be? He wasn't the law wasn't even given until four hundred years later, four hundred and thirty years later. They said, never mind. Abraham kept the law perfectly before the law was ever given. That's what they came up with, and that's the setting that Paul is going back and reading the Bible with the help of the Spirit of God and coming away with this whole principle of promise. And uh, he develops it here in Romans four, and he develops it over in Galatians at length. And what a wonderful thing it is.
He says this, and in later in Romans, he says, this is a word of promise. At this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. Now that's the way it is with the birth of every Christian, the spiritual birth of every Christian. At this time will I come and Sarah, the barren one who represents the church, will have a son. And that's how every Christian is born, by promise. And it's in fulfillment to this great promise that Abraham would have a multitude of descendants, spiritual descendants. Um, Well, if all this is true, then Abraham's real seed, his real descendants, must be all those people uh, who believe God the same way he did, not those people that are his physical descendants, not those people who try to keep the law but those who believe God the same way he did. And that's where we take up today in uh, verse 16 and the beginning of verse 17. Uh, For this reason it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace in order that the promise may be certain to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, in the sight of God, in the sight of him whom he believed, even God. Um, Abraham's true seed are those people who believe God. In God's sight, there aren't two groups, Jew and Gentile. Now that was, you know, that's old hat to us, but that was absolutely mind-boggling to both Jew and Gentile. For a Jew, a former Jew, to say there aren't two groups, there's only one group, and that is true believers. Galatians 3, 29 there is neither Jew nor Greek. Amazing statement. There is neither slave nor free man. Now suppose you own a slave. Any ideas of of pride or superiority immediately go out the window when you become a Christian. You see a statement like this. I mean, Paul didn't go out and campaign and start some kind of moral majority to try to get rid of slavery. All he had to do was say, in Christ there's neither slave nor free man. Slavery's done. It's not going to take long before it disappears. See, whenever you realize that in Christ Jesus there's neither slave nor free man, There's neither male nor female. Do you realize how radical that was 2,000 years ago? It's still radical. That there is absolute equality for the sexes when it comes to the cross, when it comes to, to our relationship to God. Absolute equality in Christ. There is neither male nor female. Amazing thing. For a Pharisee, former Pharisee to be saying, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. You see how that all fits together. So Abraham is the father of us all, as he says right here, if we're true believers. And Paul quotes from the Old Testament to prove that in this parenthetical, as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. Not just the Jews, but a father of many nations. We are Abraham's seed if we're true believers. Now that brings up a question I've been saying repeatedly, we're Abraham's seed if we're true believers. The question is, how do I know if I'm a true believer? How do I know that? 
Well, Paul has given us a hint back in verse 12. He says, true believers are those who, right in the middle of the verse, who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham. So a true believer is somebody who follows in the steps of the faith of Abraham. That's how you know if you're a true believer. And again, <clears throat> a little bit later here in verse 16, he says uh, the, that the promise might be certain to all the seed, not only those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. Now, that is an amazing statement. If you're a true Christian... You are of the faith of Abraham. The faith of Abraham, you are of the faith of Abraham. In other words, you've got the same kind of faith that Abraham had. In fact, you could say it like this, every Christian has the same faith that Abraham had. In this sense, that the faith that every Christian has is a faith that has been wrought in their heart by the same spirit that worked faith in Abraham's heart. All right? Peter calls it like precious faith, or the New American Standard says a faith like ours. A faith of the same kind as ours. So, saving faith is faith of, that is of the same kind as Abraham's faith. Now that brings up another question. What was Abraham's faith like? What, what kind of faith was that? What sort of faith did he have? What were the characteristics of his faith? And that's the subject that Paul begins to deal with here in the middle of verse 17, and it goes all the way to verse 22. What was the nature of Abraham's faith? Have you noticed this shift here? He begins talking about how uh, in, in hope, Against hope he believed, and uh, he grew strong in faith, and so on. He's centering his attention on Abraham's faith. What was the nature of Abraham's faith? If all true Christians follow in the steps of the faith of Abraham, then it's very important for us to know what Abraham's faith was, what it was like. Now, I want to point out in this section that we're getting ready to look at from verse 17 on down. Uh, Paul is still talking about the promise. That comes up in verse, well, just about every verse, but specifically mentioned in verse 20 with respect to the promise of God in verse 21, being fully assured that what he had promised. So he's still talking about the promise. And he's still talking about justification by faith. That's the theme of this chapter, and you see that in verse 22. It was reckoned to him as righteousness, so on, justification by faith. So he hasn't left the topic, but here in these verses he begins to concentrate on the nature of the faith that does justify. Still talking about justification by faith, but what kind of faith is it that does justify? What are the characteristics of true saving faith. That is the subject that we will begin to take up today, and Lord willing, we'll continue it next week. There is such a thing as temporary faith in Christian circles. Luke 8.13, Jesus tells a parable about those who believe for a while, but then tribulation, persecution arises because of the word they fall away. They believe for a while. 
There is such a thing as temporary faith. It doesn't save. They believe for a while. There's such a thing as superficial faith. John 2.23, when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in His name. But what? Jesus didn't commit Himself to them because He knew all men. And He had no need for anyone to bear witness concerning man, for He Himself knew what was in man. So it's possible to have superficial faith. That won't save you either. It's possible to have mere intellectual faith. In James, you remember? He says the demons also believe. That's faith. They also believe and they even tremble. That's more than most men do. But that it will not save you. That's a faith that does not have any commitment in it. And so the question is, what is the nature of true saving faith as opposed to all these superficial, temporary, um, mere intellectual types of faith? What is the nature of true saving faith? And what, what a wonderful portion of Scripture this is and what a great help the Lord has given us by giving us the example of Abraham and by having someone like Paul draw it out for us. What are the characteristics of saving faith? Lord willing, today we will start looking at three of these. And the first one is this. Saving faith believes God. It believes God. Now, this is in verse 17. In the sight of Him whom He believed, even God. Abraham believed God. And in verse 3, we've already seen this. What does the Scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And verse 5, To the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly. Again, believing God. So saving faith believes God. About 30 years ago, there was a phenomenon known as the Jesus Movement. And there were uh, people that were known as Jesus people. Now, when you hear something like that, it ought to... At the very outset, it ought to make you uncomfortable. When you're around people that talk about Jesus this and Jesus that, and they pray to Jesus and thank you, Jesus, and all that, when you hear too much of that, it ought to at least make you uncomfortable. Why is that? Well, because we're not saved by believing on Jesus. We're saved by believing on God. Now, that sounds like a heresy, because believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. What am I talking about? We're not saved by believing on Jesus. Well, the Jesus that saves us is specifically the unique Son of God, the second person of the triune Godhead. He's not just some little local deity, some little Jesus. He is a Jesus that is set in the whole context of God, the infinite God. Now, let me try to explain this more. You talk to a Hindu... And you ask them if they want to accept Jesus, they'll say, sure. I mean, why not? They've got 330 million gods in India. There's always room for one more. You know? Because when they accept Jesus, they're taking this little god in amongst all their other gods, you see. That's what I'm talking about. Saving faith believes God, that is, the God who is over everything. It's, in other words, saving faith is set in a whole world view. 
of reality. Francis Schaeffer told years ago about some of the people that came forward at one of the big so-called crusades there in uh, London. And um, they came forward to accept Jesus. And in the counseling time, the people are talking to him, and they find out that the person doesn't believe in the existence of God. Isn't that amazing? What are they doing? They're coming up to accept Jesus. What does that mean, accept Jesus, in a context where you don't even believe that there's a God? You see? When we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, it's all in the context of this one great God who is over all. It's all in the setting, you see, of something bigger. And so there's no saving faith apart from believing God. That's what the Bible says. It's not enough. Accepting Jesus means nothing except in the total biblical context. Believing in the resurrection doesn't mean anything except in the total biblical context. You come to some guy that's, you know, high on drugs and, you know, living in this pagan worldview, and you say, you know, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Well, in my day, they'd say, wow, far out, you know. Now, nowadays, it'd probably be weird, man, weird. You know, this guy rose from the dead. No, this guy didn't rise from the dead. The incarnate God rose from the dead. Totally different thing. Because the resurrection is set in the total context of who God is. You see? And it wasn't just some guy that rose from the dead. You know, weird things happen in a chaotic universe. But it was God the Son that rose from the dead in God's universe. You see the point? See the difference? Now let me just share some verses with you. John 5 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in me has eternal life. That's not what it says. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. John 12, 44 and 45, Jesus cried out and said, he who believes in me does not believe in me but in Him who sent me. Acts 16.31, you remember that Philippian jailer? It says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. What happened? He believed and they were baptized and it says, He brought them into His house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly having believed in God with His whole household. So they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and He believed in God. And he was converted. 1 John 5.10 The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his Son. You see how they just tie right together? 1 Peter 1.20.21 For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God. Now, we don't usually think of it that way. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe in God. That's the way Peter says it. Amazing. Through Him, you're believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, 
so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, this is part of why it's so dangerous to go to tribes and people groups who've never heard anything and try to get them to accept Jesus. You see, they've got to have the total context. You can't do it in a vacuum. The same thing is more and more true in heathen America. People have no concept of who God is. And talking to them about accepting Jesus doesn't mean a thing as far as the the total picture, the total worldview. Fanny Crosby. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give Him the glory. Great things He has done. One of the marks of true conversion, both for the headhunter and the college student, is whenever they, they realize that they have come to the one great God who is Lord over all, who's made heaven and earth, the infinite and the eternal. Well, that's the first question that we ought to ask ourselves is, do, do I have some local deity or have I believed in God? Have I met the living God, the one true God, the infinite, eternal, omnipotent, living creator of all things? Secondly, saving faith believes God. Secondly, saving faith believes very specifically the promises of God. Now, we already saw this back in verse 3. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. Well, what did he, what did he believe? What did he What's it mean he believed God? Well, God had taken him out and showed him the sky, and he said, so shall your seed be. That's the way your descendants are going to be. And he believed God. He believed what God said. And so saving faith believes a specific word of God. It believes the promises of God. It's not just some vague thing. You're not just saved by faith in general. You specifically believe the word of God. Same thing in verse 20. With respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith. This promise that he was going to have a son. Now, isn't this something? If you're going to be saved, if you're going to follow in the steps of our father Abraham, you're going to have to believe God's word. You're going to have to believe God specifically. You're going to have to believe his promises. And by the word believe, I mean with your whole soul, you're going to have to commit yourself to the truth of what this God has said, His promises. That's an amazing thing. We, we, often we don't think of it in that way. But that's the way every Christian is saved. They put their trust in the Word of the God who reveals Himself, and they stake their whole soul on it. Every Christian here today has staked their everything, their whole soul, their eternity, on the truthfulness of something God has said. Isn't that something? God's promises. You can think right off of the promise of eternal life in Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. We have accepted that to the point of sometimes losing your job, having your entire life changed going out on a mission field somewhere and being stoned to death, you know, or being ridiculed in front of a class. You believe that promise so much. You see, you commit yourself so much to the truthfulness of what God has said. That's the way saving faith is. It believes specific promises of God. Here's another one. God says, whoever 
Whoever believes on my son will never be put to shame. That's a promise. If you put yourself on Christ and believe on Him, you will never be put to shame. Now there's some who will, of whom God will be ashamed, and they will be put to shame. But not anybody that puts their trust completely upon Christ. He who believes in Him shall not be put to shame. Here's another one. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God. You, you put your trust in that completely. So, uh, we see it clearly in the area of basic promises, but it's not only the basic promises that saving faith believes. In principle, saving faith believes all of God's promises because it believes God. Now, let me give you uh, an illustration of this. Take the promise of material provision. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Material provision. He says, don't be worried about what you shall eat, what you shall drink, and so on. And you say, well, that's, sometimes that's kind of hard to believe. It is. The hard, promises of God are not, they're not only hard to believe, they're impossible to believe in yourself. But you come up against this, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things. So here's a promise of material provision. It doesn't even have anything to do with eternal salvation in one sense. But suppose there's a guy who does not believe God enough to trust Him for material provision, and so he refuses to seek first the kingdom of God. Wouldn't you say of that person, it's really questionable whether he's got saving faith. Because if you've got saving faith, you believe what God says, you see. In other words, saving faith is of a sort that it just believes God's promises. And as you live the Christian life, those th that saving faith encounters more and more new promises that are harder and harder to enter into. <laughs> and you've got to, by, by faith and patience, be followers of those like Abraham who inherit the promises. But that's the nature of saving faith. It's not the idea that saving faith believes one or two little promises at the start. Well, they're big promises, but one or two basic promises, and then it rejects all the others. No, saving faith believes God. And in principle, when you become a Christian, and you don't realize this at all, but when you become a Christian, you just committed yourself to believing a whole lot. And saving faith comes and counters it as you grow, and you gr you've got to grow in this. But as you grow, you encounter more and more of what the promises mean. And you believe God. It hey, wasn't that true of Abraham. See, he believed God. He started out believing God. He left Ur of the Chaldees believing God, but he believed God a lot more But when he was climbing up the mountain to offer up his son. His faith grew. We'll get to that later, Lord willing. But faith, <clears throat> saving faith, commits itself to the promises of God. Now, uh, that's the nature of saving faith. The Christian is one who believes in the promises of God and believes the promises of God. Standing on the promises that cannot fail... Though the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living Word of God I shall prevail. 
standing on the promises of God. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? I mean, do you really think God's going to lie to us? I mean, is it too difficult for Him? That's what God brought up to Abraham. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? I mean, think about it. So I told you I would do this, and I'm able to do it. Well, I know, Lord, you're able to do it, but, you know, but this is the nature of saving faith. It stands on the promises, believes the promises, commits itself to the truthfulness of the promises of God. Well, last thing then. Saving faith specifically believes God as the one who raises the dead and as the one who calls, literally, as, who calls the things which do not exist as existing. Now, let's just look at these. First of all, well, all this is in verse 17. But Paul makes a big deal of this. Why does he bring up this matter of God being the one who raises the dead? I mean, Abraham, after all, Abraham never, he didn't, he never, he hadn't even heard about the resurrection of Christ. I mean, how did he believe the God who raises the dead? He didn't have to have that kind of faith. Well, he did, didn't he? He believed in the God who raises the dead. What, how do we know that? Anyone? What's that? All right. But even before that, and we'll get to that in a little bit, but even, uh, Dave said Genesis 22, but even before that, he believed the God who raises the dead. It's right here. All right. But what about himself? Even his own body now dead. You see, as good as dead. He's a hundred years old. hundred year old men have not been known for having lots of children. And ninety year old barren women have not been known for having lots of children. I mean, first of all, he said, and, and this is what Paul is bringing in here. He says, look, I'm wanting to get across to you that the nature of saving faith, it specifically believes God in this area as the one who raises the dead. Now, this is amazing. I mean, you're dealing here with something that is totally beyond any little God. Raising the dead. You've got a guy, I mean, I've been to a number of funerals. And you just stand there and look at that body, and you really start talking about that guy setting up and start talking again. That's a pretty big thing. That's a pretty big thing to accept. That there's some that there is a God that God is able to raise the dead. He's able to make that stiff body grow warm and that guy set up and start talking again. That's how real it was in the resurrection. Christ was just as cold and stiff in that tomb. He was dead. He was dead. He wasn't it wasn't some kind of swoon. He was dead. And God raised him from the dead. I mean, Paul says, Abraham... Now look, you're saved by the same kind of faith Abraham had, and Abraham's faith was a faith in God who raises the dead. And started out, before he could ever have a child, his body was as good as dead in terms of procreation. And his wife's was even more so, because she was doubly dead. She had a barren womb. She never could have kids when she was young. And now when she's 90 years old, she's going to have a son. 
Now, that was the first step in believing God who raises the dead. But he had it, it went on. And as Dave brought out in Genesis 22, he takes Isaac up the mountain, and you remember what he says? He says, you all stay back here, and we will, we're going to go up and worship, and we will return to you. We will return to you. And it says in Hebrews that he considered that God was able to raise him from the dead. He had to because God had said one of these unchangeable promises. He said, in Isaac shall your seed be called. And now he's telling him to kill Isaac. It must be he's going to raise him from the dead. And he'd already experienced the renewal of life. In fact, Abraham, you remember back in Genesis, he went on and begat other children after he had Isaac. He must have had some kind of renewal of life. I mean, just supernaturally. And he went up the mountain believing that God was able to raise his son from the dead after he'd killed him. Now, Paul says that's the same kind of faith every Christian has. You say, well, I don't see how I could not believe that God would raise my son from the dead in the right circumstances you could. If you were in the same set of circumstances that Abraham was in, you could because you have the same kind of faith Abraham has. How do I know that? Because you believe in the God who raised the dead. You ask any Christian to try to imagine the bones of Jesus being discovered over there in the Holy Land, so-called, and you know, no Christian would believe that it's not possible. I know. You see, that just comes out. I know you're not going to find the bones of Jesus because He's risen. <laughs> and you know He's risen. Because you have faith in the God who raises the dead. It's something given. It's supernatural. It's a knowledge that God has raised the dead. If you shall confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's the nature of saving faith. It believes in the God who raises the dead. And you go through the book of Acts, I mean, it's just over and over and over the emphasis. He's risen. He's risen. He is not there. He's not in the tomb. He's risen. And that's one thing that every Christian knows with certainty because they have the same kind of faith that Abraham had and that something worked in their heart by the Holy Spirit. Now, Lord willing, we maybe have more on this next time. I'm just giving the introduction to it. But let's go on to the second part. Every Christian believes in the God who raises the dead, but verse 17, he also believes in the God, and let's follow the literal here, who calls the things which do not exist as existing. Now, the idea, yes, there is the idea of creation. God calls things out of nothing, but it doesn't say it that way. It doesn't say that he calls into being those things which do not exist. It doesn't say that. It says he calls the things which do not exist yet as existing, as if they existed. That's, that's a little different. Now, let's talk about this. What's it mean? He calls the things that do not exist as existing. Well, let me give you an example of it. Right here in verse 17, as it is written, A father of many nations... I will make you. Is that what it says? A father of many nations, I have made you. He didn't even have one child yet. 
He says, I've made you a father of many nations. He calls the things that don't exist as existing. How can he be so certain about it? Because God's promise is certain. He has all power to fulfill it, and he will certainly fulfill it. So as soon as God purposes and promises something, it is as good as done, even though it is still future. Now that's what he's talking about. He believed that God who calls those things which do not exist as if they existed right now. Now, that's the same kind of faith that every Christian exercises. Think of, think of it back. Let, let's just go back to one place. Um, back in Genesis 17. Well, before we look at that, Genesis 15. We're almost finished, so hold on a little longer. Genesis 15. Let me give you another example of this before we go to Genesis 17. Genesis 15 and verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your seed... I have given this land. He doesn't say, I will give it. He says, I have given it. Another place, I think he says to Joshua, I believe, everywhere the sole of your foot shall tread, I have given to you. Not I will give to you, I have given it to you. You've got to walk on it, but I've already given it to you. Now, Genesis 17. You see this so clearly in this matter of the names that were given. Genesis 17 and verses 4 and 5. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. Now he gave him this name, father of a multitude of nations. And then in verse... Um, 15 he speaks to Sarah then God said to Abraham as for Sarah your wife you shall not call her name Sarai but Sarah shall be her name which means princess and I will bless her and indeed I will give you a son by her then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations Kings of people shall come from her. Now, what about this? He gives them these names before they ever have a child. And Abraham believes the God who calls those things that do not exist as existing. And we know that because he changed his name. He started going by the name Abraham instead of Abram, father of a multitude of nations. And Sarah, Sarah starts going by the name Sarah, princess. And I've shared this many times, but I think it's so amazing. Abraham and Sarah come in to the breakfast table and sit down, and she says, Good morning, father of a multitude of nations. <laughs> he doesn't have any kids. And he says, good morning, princess. She's 90 years old. You see, he is, 
He is believing in the God whose word is as good as reality. That's what it is. In other words, once God has determined and promised something, even though it does not yet exist, it is just as certain as real and real as if it did already exist. Now, we see this in Romans 8. Paul says, Whom He predestined, those He also called. Whom He called, them He also justified. That has to do with becoming a Christian. Calling and justification. But notice how He puts it. Whom He justified, them He also glorified. Past tense. Heaven is past tense in that verse. Whom He called, He justified. Whom He justified, He glorified. He jumps all the way from the day you became a Christian to when you're glorified and in the image of Christ in heaven. He jumps from the first chapter to the last chapter. And it's a great blessing, you know, if, you, if you're reading a book and the hero's in big trouble and looks like he's going to die, and you read on, you skip over the last chapter and he's still alive. You know that, he, that he's going to make it through whatever it is. And that's the way it is in the Christian life. You know that you're going to make it through whatever it is because the last chapter's already been written. Everything that God has said, He calls those things which are not yet as certain as if it were already done. How does that song go? Yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given, more happy but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. That's an amazing thing. When Jesus said there in John 17, Father, I, I want all those of whom you have given me to be with me where I am, that, that settled it. That's how clear and certain it is. That if you belong to Him, you're going to be with Him where He is, that you may behold His glory. The certainty. Well, Every Christian is called upon to exercise that kind of faith, the faith in the God who calls those things which do not exist as existing. And it starts out right at the very beginning of your Christian life. First thing God, it's, first thing God does is calls you a saint. As soon as you become a Christian, call saints. To those that are at Corinth, you know, call saints. To those that are at Rome, call saints. You're just immediately called a holy one. I love that story of Nicky Cruz, who was a New York gangster, and the night he was converted, he stood in front of the mirror. He still had his gun in his holster, and he still had his knife, and he's looking in the mirror, and he says, so Nicky's going to be an angel now. The instant you become a Christian, you're a saint. You're set apart. You're a holy one. But there is a lot of working out to take place before the things that God has called as existing exist in practice. You see, that's part of the reality of the Christian life. God comes to Ezekiel. I don't know, maybe I mentioned this last time. He comes to Ezekiel. He says, I've made your forehead as hard as theirs. Well, you know, it doesn't feel any different. But it's something that you enter into and walk in because it's a done deal. God has said it. And He said a lot of things. He said we're dead indeed unto sin and that we're alive unto God. 
That's one of the things that's done, settled. Many others. Well, Lord willing, we'll go on next time and uh, try to examine some of these things some more and look at some more characteristics that we see here of the nature of saving faith. Well, let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that when we become a Christian, we come into relationship with the living God, the infinite God. And it's such a relationship that it's a relationship of trust and that we actually trust and commit ourselves, our very eternity, we commit ourselves to You and Your truthfulness. Lord, um, specifically, repeatedly in the Christian life, we're called upon to believe that You're the God who raises the dead and that when You say something, it's done regardless of what things look like right now. And uh, we pray, help us to enter more. Help us to grow strong in faith and give glory to You that what You've promised, You're able also to perform. We thank You for these things. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, Amen. Let's... Continue our fellowship together in mealtime. Pray the Lord.